Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom. It's a very special episode. We have the legendary Chuck Dixon on the show. Chuck, how are you going? Very, very good. Good to hear from you. Good to see you. Well, it's hands across the ocean again, Chuck. You know, once again, uh, you're in, uh, is it still summer there over in Florida? Yeah, I'm in, uh, in the Tampa Bay area. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, uh, we've got Richard on the show. Richie there as well. Hello, hello, everybody. Yeah. Hello, Chuck. Hey, yeah. Richard, how are you doing? Oh, you know, getting there. Rock and roll, man. Now, yo, Joe, Chuck, first up is the first thing we want to say because we've definitely got some G.I. Joe questions for you because of your G.I. Joe run uh, that you did a few years ago. Now, the first question I have for you, Chuck, I always like to have a warm-up question for our guests, and you've gone through many levels of questions. This is a serious one. Area 51, Chuck, did the aliens land? Does the U.S. government have the have the have the alien spacecraft? Uh, well, they got something they don't want to tell us about. I don't know what it would be. Uh, and more and more, we've learned to not really trust them. Oh, <laughs> so, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're not um, trusting the government they here. They sure do. And isn't it fascinating that if you go back at the time of when the po- apparently this happened, like you had actual Air Force guys saying they saw something, you know? Right. It's just yeah. nuts. It's just nuts. Now, I'll tell you this. We had, um, a couple of months ago, we had James Mateus on the show, and we were talking about the meaning of life, and he said, we're deep in a dream of God. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Chuck, if I have to do, if, if my girlfriend wants me to do the dishes or something, I say, we're deep in a dream of God. And she's like, just do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. I, I throw it into regular conversation now because I don't really understand it, but I love it. Now, um, <laughs> now That's the beauty of it. There's no understanding that. Yeah, it's, it, it's deep, but also, what does it mean? Uh, now, Chuck, yeah. I just finished um, Levon's War in your Levon Cade series. Um, incredible book, Chuck. I got such an incredible sense of the place and what a hellhole it is and how tragic that area of the world is. Yeah. Uh, um, did you? How much research do you do for those military and historical books? Is it just enough to make the story believable? And do you ever find yourself so deep in the well with research and basically you have to say to yourself, time to start writing the story now? Yeah, and at some point you have to cut it off because then you're going to just make your book about the research you did and you don't want to do that. No. Um, but it all depends. I mean, um, in one of my Bad Times books, I, I went into a lot of detail about the the Taiping Rebellion in China, because I had read a lot about it previously. So a lot of times these are things about I read I, I read a lot about previously. As far as you know, going into Iraq and mm. everything else, and going into Mosul, um, I relied upon all the stuff I had read, plus uh, talking to a lot of guys who had been there, mm. uh, who gave me the kind of details you don't get in a book. It felt very realistic, and and I, I felt sorry for the people who are there, if you know what I mean, not, not even just the yeah. soldiers, but like the civilians, you know? Yeah. Like it's it's crazy. Um, now, I had a, I, I read on the Dixonverse forum that apparently the Levon Cade series and the Bad Time series coexist in the same universe. Is, is this for real? Yeah. I was like, really? I didn't re- realise. 
Well, well, there's kind of Easter eggs there if you look for them. In the most recent Levon Cade book, he he actually encounters a relative of one of the characters from the Bad Time series, and that and that character is directly referenced. But I've indirectly referenced that same character a couple of times. But uh, if you don't read both series, you'll miss it. Right, yeah, because I was going to say the Chinese businessman with the Oxford accent, is he a link? Because wasn't there a Chinese businessman in Bad Times, I'm remembering? Um, uh, there was, but, yeah, that's not guy. a direct link. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not a direct link. I, I love it, though. Uh, like, at least it yeah. wasn't intended to be. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, I love it, though. Um, I remember in one of the Bad Times books, which, as listeners will know, and check them out if you haven't, they're, they're time travel books, but you had one, a cool sequence in the present where one of the lead characters comes across a meth factory in the desert and proceeds to just destroy it. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love that sequence because it kind of felt like you were blending the, the genres a little bit, you know, like it was almost something Levon Cade would do, you know? Right, right. <laughs> now, right, right, yeah. when you look at a work week um, with your commitments to arc tunes and other projects... How much of time? How much time do you allot to the novels on like a weekly or monthly basis? Well, when I write a novel, I try to go from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cur- I'm writing a novel currently, and I'm I'm like on the last part of it, and then a a, a job came up, a comic job came yeah. up. Yeah. But so I I'm interrupting the flow, but that's why I work way ahead of schedule, so I can take on things like that. Um, but yeah, if if I'm into a novel, I try to stay into it beginning to end. Right. So you sort of uh, and, you sort of you sort of put yourself in a bubble and finish the finish the draft. Yeah, yeah. Because you really got to stay with the flow and the tone and the voice. It's all got to be consistent. I mean, comic. I can write a comic story in a week. Yeah. But you know, a novel takes you know um, you know a month or two months. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Uh, are there yeah. any plans for up- more upcoming novels for Levon Kate or others such as Bad Times or Gomez? Well. Um, bad times. I pretty much the, the six books that exist are it for now. I do want to get back to it, but I did kind of tie up most of the loose ends, so I'm not leaving everybody hanging. But Levon, I'm continuing on. I'm going to start a twelfth book in a couple of weeks here. Wow, it is impressive because that that must be. Um, is it would that be your bestseller? Like you know, in terms of novels? Yeah, Levon's definitely the most popular thing I've written. It has a it, it has a growing following. It, it's it it sort of grows and fits and starts. And I have to thank you guys because <laughs> I think you're responsible for every reader in Australia of my <laughs> Levon Cade books. We we try, uh, Chuck. I try to spam the audience. You know, like I, I I try to get into their brains to buy your stuff. So it's a you know it's an instinctual sort of thing with them. You know. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. I mean, it's um. Yeah, it's the it and and it's starting to grow more now because we did audio books and things like that, and then all of that increased uh, increased the following. Excellent. I, yeah. I tell you what, um, when you got time, I could definitely go another zombie novel from you. Like I I think that that zombie novel, it was so like I know that you put so much stuff out, but that one I was like, oh yeah, keep going, yeah, because you, you you finished it <laughs> and it would you left the ending kind of open, and I was like, yes, please more. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I might revisit that one if I get that zombie itch again. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. You know, they never quite go out of fashion. Zombies, you, they can be overexposed, yeah. but they can always come back. You know, no, it's it's a genre now. It's a genre. It's it's never going to go away. Everybody said, when the when is it going to go? It's never going to go away because yeah. you know, for every zombie thing that flops, another one succeeds. Exactly, so, exactly. Uh, now, something I wanted to mention, uh, Hunter. 
Ninja Bear at Phenom, Phenom Comics. Um, this was great value. Now, this is hilarious, Chuck, because this was coming out, and I picked it up. Um, it, you, it was like, I want to say it was a Kickstarter. Uh, I think it was a Kickstarter. Yeah. I, yeah, um, Kickstarter. yeah for some reason, I thought it was going to be a single, possibly oversized issue, and I ordered it. Imagine, <laughs> imagine my surprise when it was a 364-page graphic novel. And I was like... Great value. Um, can you tell the yeah. listeners a little bit about this one, Chuck, and how it came to be? As I think it's an amazing package. Well, um, Rob Hunter, who's the anchor on it, uh, we, we, we were good friends for cross-gen days, and I ran into him at a convention, and he said, I recommended you to this startup company, Phenom, because they have this project, and I think you're the only guy that could write it. Right. And um, so they presented me with the project, and it was basically a movie treatment. Um and it was it was pretty complete, but they, they they didn't know where they were going at the end. And of course, everything had to be dramatized, and new characters had to be created. Although a lot of the characters in the existing project they they created, so they they gave me free reign wow. with their movie. Too. I mean, they they really except for the ending, we had some discussions at the ending yeah. about what they wanted. But for the most part, I was left completely up to my own devices, and they were very happy with the end product. And um, it was a well-financed product. It, it would have to be to do a project this size. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Rob and I both picked out Mel Ruby, who I had worked with before. And, uh, you know, we just went to town. And, and I think Rob brought in Ivan Nunez, who did those astounding colors. And uh, the project sort of came together. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an insane idea for a story, but I, I think I made it work. Oh, certainly. And can I say Mel Ruby on pencils is exquisite. Like, it's a beautiful, beautiful package. Um, it's kind of like, would you describe it? It's like Japanese historical meets crazy bears. Um, I'm yeah, scared. I'm out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you what, these bears are damn feisty. The motto seems to be, don't piss off a bear. Um, right. right. <laughs> and, and we've had people say, well, there's no bears like that in Japan. I mean, they, they have bears, but they're not like that. And I said, well, mm. that's because they became extinct in our story. <laughs> well, you know what I did? I was reading it just yesterday and I was like, my God, I, I didn't know Japan had bears. I Googled it. Yeah. Japan does actually have bears. Um, yes, they do. Yeah. News to me. Um, they're not quite grizzlies, but yeah, they are bears. Yeah. Um, semi-related, um, Chuck, did you see someone did a horror picture with an evil Winnie the Pooh after the rights were public domain? Have you seen this? <laughs> <laughs> so it's in the zeitgeist. Um, by the by, the way, when I was reading it, this was yes yesterday, and I was kind of speed reading it. I'm officially the idiot who didn't realise at first we weren't still in Japan when it went to the hunters back in the US wilderness with the Indians. I, and I was yeah. like, I was like, okay, we're in Japan. I see with all the hunters and and the Indians, and I was like. Are we in Japan? I don't know. <laughs> but no, it's. I, I have to recommend it. Like, and people can go to Phenom Comics uh, website to order it, right, Chuck? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and they've got a lot more projects coming. Uh, one, one of them by me. So a lot, I, a lot of really great stuff coming up. I yeah, I saw that that Seven Deadly Sinners, which we've mentioned before, was listed yeah. um, as upcoming. Yeah, that's next in the pipeline. Oh, fantastic. Look, it is a fantastic package, and you are getting bang for your buck because, like I said, I thought it was one of the most beautiful books. I mean, the, the pencils she does really are just beautiful. If you like Japanese historical stuff, uh, it's a must-get for listeners. Uh, now, I keep an eye on your Arctoons product, and my God, you're busy on this on this site, Chuck. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Now, I saw War Man. Now, this was something you did like an epic, correct, that you've yeah, now republished? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, it's like reading the old strips in a newspaper. I love it. Um, who was your artist on that one? Because I really liked their work. Uh, it was Juan Zanato is an Argentine artist. He does, he, well, until he passed, he yeah. did a lot of work uh, for the Italian company Eroa. And uh, in fact, uh, War Man was simultaneously published at Epic and Eroa. Right. Uh, is that and also the, the thing about War Man is it was for about five minutes. It was considered as the concept for the, the fourth Die Hard movie. Really? Yeah. That's very yeah. interesting. Wow. When, when it was going to be Bruce Willis, and Britney Spears as his daughter. Britney Spears as his daughter. Okay. Well, I guess, I, the ages work. <laughs> um, imagine if they did it now with them currently. <laughs> they're both, unfortunately, they're both struggling. Um, is that something, uh, obviously, the rights at some point reverted to you. Is that something you could keep doing either, you know, with a different artist or in that style? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I could definitely revisit it. I mean... The, the, the deal with Epic was that, that after five years, uh, the rights were reverted to the creators. Oh, that's fantastic. So, you know, and then as soon as that happened, you know, I was all over it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really good one. And I'll just point, the amount of product that you have at Arctoons that you pump out, like are you always working on something so they have a nice inventory of stuff there? Well, the thing is with the, with the weekly episodes, uh, the weekly episodes are roughly equivalent to two pages of comics. Mm-hmm. So I can spend a week and get months and months ahead yeah. uh, with, without a problem. So at, at this point, I'm, I'm many, many episodes ahead of my artists. And, of course, the other stuff is reprint. Yeah. And I don't have anything to do with that. They simply have to reformat it and reletter it. I like the way he calls you the legendary Chuck Dixon. It's like in your tag. <laughs> it's good. I'm like, good. A bit of respect. Yeah, he just said, I'm going to start calling you the legend. I'm like, okay. okay. Well, why not? You've earned it, Chuck. Uh, now, Rich, you've got a question here. Hey, uh, so uh, Chuck, you've uh, obviously worked on uh, a lot of the Bat family, uh, Nightwing, Robin, Batman. Who, who's your favorite um, Bat family character, and why is it Nightwing? <laughs> <laughs> Nightwing was a lot of fun, but I, I, I really, I mean, I enjoyed writing all of it, but I really enjoyed the sort of interstitial scenes. Like, it, it, I could write Alfred and and Tim Drake forever. Just talking in the Batcave. I mean, that stuff was so much fun. Uh, you know, the you know, trying to humanize these characters, show them mm. as real people. You know, I didn't want to overdo that because that's self-indulgent. But whenever I got to do it, it, it was a lot of fun because you know the uh, Alfred's dry humor yeah. and uh, all the rest of it. That you know, that was a kick for me. And writing the cop characters and all that. Because I mean, there's a limit to how far you can take Nightwing and Batman and characters like that. I mean, mm. you can't you, you you can't make them yours. You, know, you can't go crazy with them, but uh, but the other characters you can have more fun with. Okay. Bullock, so Renee Montoya. <laughs> Renee, Renee Montoya yeah, used to do yeah. very well with Chuck. I remember a lot of Bullock and Renee Montoya scenes. Yeah, yeah I mean that stuff's great because I mean you've got the clash of of personalities and all the rest of it. I mean because Alfred and Robin and Batman, their relationship's kind of set. It's not really evolving. But these other characters, you can, you know, continually have them, you know, get on each other's nerves, fall out, come back together. Exactly. Uh, Do you remember the time when Alfred, he kind of did a zinger where he was like, uh, Tim Drake's dead of the plague. Oh, no, he's not. He's on a liar. It was like, you're pranking people now, Alfred? (laughs) 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 I've got to say, uh, DC really need to put out an omnibus of your Nightwing run because it's like 70 issues. 
That'd be like two omnibuses, I would think. Oh, yeah. Well, somebody recently on, on my Ask Chuck Dixon, they asked, um, can you put out a Birds of Prey omnibus? And I was like, well, it's not up to me. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, one omnibus would cover all of it. Exactly. Uh, that'd be beautiful. But it's about yeah, maybe you. someday with, with Dan DiDio finally gone from D.C., you know, you might see more of that stuff. Well, exactly. And I think in his latter days, you started to finally see a lot more of your product started to come out. And, yeah. But like one omnibus would probably cover your Birds of Prey with the, with the um, you know, the miniseries you did before it as well. Miniseries, um, one shots, and then I think 42 issues. So yeah. 42 brilliant issues, Chuck. Um, now, uh-huh. speaking of Dan Dio, is it true that he had some bizarre hatred of Nightwing slash Dick Grayson, or is that apocryphal? No, no. He thought that Nightwing was an irrelevant character. Really? Uh, which I don't know how you say that, <laughs> because even if he was irrelevant, he was extraordinarily popular yeah. for a character, probably second only to Batman in, in the Batman universe. But yeah. he didn't like it was a fan prejudice he brought with him. And you you can't if you're going to be head of a publishing line, you can't bring your fan prejudices along with you. It's just such an odd thing to hate Nightwing. It's like, what did he do wrong? Like, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got to say, I, I, I have heard Denny O'Neill, obviously before he passed in an interview was talking about how he hated Robin, which I thought was kind of amusing because you did a hundred issues of Robin, mostly under Denny's watch. Did I hated Robin? No, 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 he no, no. He, he hated Robin. Well, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I'm, he didn't. <clears throat> Denny understood we needed Robin. In fact, he's the one who explained to me why we needed Robin. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's from a commercial standpoint, because I, I think Denny, Denny loved loner characters. He loved tortured loner characters. Mm. And, and he always thought Batman should be that. Right. But he realized that every time they tried that, sales plummeted. Because, yeah. um, you know, fans may want solo tortured loner batman but casual readers don't and that's you know who Mm -hmm. we need to make these things make money yeah well i mean also it's like you can't just have batman solo 24 7 with all the titles he has to be in like that you know with all the think of like the bat when you were working there and now like there's a million and two batman titles he needs supporting characters to even fill up the books well and also you know, Denny's point was that he needs Alfred and Robin to humanize him yeah. uh, to give him stakes because otherwise who cares? You yeah. know, he goes out one night and gets killed. And no one cares. There's no one at home wondering where he is. Uh, it's, it's a sad and pathetic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also it, it, it makes you, if, if it's Batman by himself acting, it, it sort of takes down your suspension of disbelief because you start asking yourself questions like, why is this guy doing this? Is he crazy? Uh, whereas if you have a cast of characters who don't think he's crazy and are cooperating with him, yeah. you think, okay, well, this is the normal reality in this universe. Mm. This is cool. And I'm thinking as well, you're totally right, the interpersonal dynamics. Like, remember what you would have Huntress and she was kind of like half in, half out? It's drama by having other people, yeah. you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you got to see him interact with people. I mean, that's one of the – I love the Punisher, but that's one of the failings of the Punisher is that he is a loner. There isn't that interaction. There isn't that ensemble. Only uh, and that, and that, ten, that tension between all the characters, whereas you have that with Batman. That's very true. I was going to say with Frank uh, back in the day, uh, really just microchip. That's it, you know? Yeah, and then he turned on him. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and you always okay. knew that he might because yeah. uh, he totally dissed microchip all the time. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. but he, I mean, he used this guy. It, it was, yeah. you know... Uh, 
it, it, it got to the point where it was like reading a taxi driver comic. You know, it's like, okay, do I want to keep reading this? Yeah, I mean, I did. But, I mean, yeah. I, and I'm saying even when I was writing it, it was, it was getting it was getting all too sad. <laughs> it did get a little dark at times. I agree. Um, yeah. No. Now I want to mention just throwing back to Arcturns. Are uh, you doing a Conan um, like a prose story with some pictures? Um, yeah. So pure serialized fiction, like back in the old days. Uh, did you move on this the second Conan went public domain, Chuck? Yeah, well, you know, Vox asked me, would, would he says, you know, Conan's public domain. I thought, oh, no, he's going to ask me to write Conan comic. And he says, have you ever thought about writing a Conan novel? And I'm like, oh, no, but yeah, yeah, I want to <laughs> start today on that. Yeah, yeah. And I did. Yeah, I wrote, I, you know, the whole novel's written about three quarters of the way through the second one. Oh, really? Uh, the plan is to, for me to write three of them. Uh, and the, 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 the print version will be out you know, probably in another month. That was, thank but, you, uh, Chuck. That was my next question. So will you put yeah. those up um, on like Amazon, like you you do with your, you know, your other novels or how will you do it? Well, it'll be sold through Castalia House, through Vox's publishing company. So it'll be on Amazon. It'll be available directly through Castalia. Well, and, uh, yeah. and, but, but Vox is real hot to start this serialization thing. He wanted to experiment and see if the pros stuff drove our numbers up, which they did. I was going to say because it's good stuff. Like, I mean, honestly, I mean, it's no surprise with all your with all your Conan work you've done. But I love it because I'm reading it last night. I'm like, yeah, the hard edge of the action, but it's very much Conan. Like, and I think um, like hardened Conan Robert E. Howard fans would really eat this up um, when it comes out as a complete novel. I think you're going to get a whole new audience. Like, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm writing way more purple on Conan than I've ever written in my life. That's great, though, man. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aping Howard, but I'm trying to get it. You know, I'm trying to get his vibe. Yeah. So. Did you ever read? Um, remember Robert Jordan? He wrote a couple of Conan novels, which were pretty good. I thought, like, yeah. um, you know, but you, your stuff is better. But I mean, I think for you, Conan is one of those characters. It just seems to be a perfect fit. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I had a lot of experience on on Savage sort of Conan. My yeah. approach is probably a little different. Than a fantasy writer's approach would be. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's more it's more punch you right in the face right from the beginning of the story and just never stop. Because uh, this one, you know, this uh, the siege of the Black Citadel, the first novel. I mean, it just keeps ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. The ending is insane. I can't wait. Um, I was going to say I'm remembering an old story you did. It was after your Savage sort of Conan. It was called Conan the Usurper or Usurper. And it was you told the story of how he literally became king and killed the the emperor or the king on and all that kind I'm of stuff. I'm not sure I did that one. No, you did. Sure. You did, Matt. Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay, I don't you know why you probably don't remember it. It was like a three parter at Marvel, like shortly before they lost the license, I believe. Huh. Um, huh. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, well, because I was because I was kicked. Well, well, I did a. I did a. Was that in Conan the Savage or Savage Sword? No, it was like in a it was like a three part like a mini series. Um, no, I don't remember that. Yeah, I'll, I'll 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 um you know it's good that you've got amnesia about <laughs> it, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll find it, I'll find it. But 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 my point is, it was a great story because you. you well, I'm, you, I'm sure it was. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for it until you prove I wrote it. But. <laughs> he had a girlfriend in it because there he he basically, for my memory serves. He, he's fighting some tribe. He's he's fighting for the you know the you know the army that the king is the king of like whatever the king is the king of that he kills. So he's fighting in that army. 
he basically captures a girl who's like a spear carrier. She kind of becomes like his girlfriend. And then they come back to the capital and hijinks ensue and he kills the king. That's the story. Right. He usurps him, Chuck. Hence Conan the Usurper. Right. <laughs> I love that I'm reminding you of your story. <laughs> well, you're going to have to because I really don't remember. Yeah, I'll, I'll, find, it, I'll find it after this. Uh, now, hey Chuck, I've got a, I've yeah. got a Conan question. Sorry, um, do you have a do you have a Conan versus Predator story that you're hanging on to, just waiting for someone to approach you? Well, I can start writing it in five minutes. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm just surprised it's they a Predator story for God's sakes. Um, yeah, I could do that. I mean, I I proposed the Dark Horse. I wanted to do Predator in Ancient Rome. Oh, I yeah. wanted Predator, you know, in the Gladiator Arena. Oh but, yeah. You know, they did they, they nixed it. Ah, oh, damn them! Why? <laughs> Well, they said that that the the Predator Bible from 20th Century Fox said that the Predators didn't start coming here until this certain year, and that was after the fall of the Roman Empire. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. And, of course, obviously they threw that out of the window for Aliens versus Predator. I was going to say that because they were coming back from the dawn of time almost. Like, the yeah, they were coming back when Antarctica had a jungle on it. <laughs> so they've been coming back for a while. Uh what did you think, by the way, speaking of Predator, did you enjoy the Prey movie or have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, yeah. I just, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Doesn't it just looks like more, more girl power stuff. And I love Predator. I love yeah. Predator. Yeah. But I only love two of the movies. <laughs> no, I hear you. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, definitely. Now, Rich, you've got a question here about creativity. Yeah, yeah, Chuck. So, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, you you do you like constantly working? Um, you you uh, putting out some good stuff. I'm just curious, as a creative person, obviously it's something you can't really switch off. But um, how do you how do you keep the motivation like going? And what you know is when you're feeling sort of down, when you're feeling like lethargic. How do you how do you keep that motivation high and going with all the stuff that you work on? Well, like I said, you know, I work way ahead of schedule. So if I'm having a time when I you know, uh, I'm not feeling it. I can take some time off. Yeah. But generally when I'm not feeling it, I just make myself feel it. Uh, you gotta, if you're going to be a professional writer, you got to learn to write when you don't feel like writing. (laughs) So you gotta, you gotta figure a way to get into it. Um, but the weird thing is, I mean, every writer at the beginning of their career wonders, you know, when is it over? When have I burned out? When am I done? (laughs) And now uh, that period, that period is way behind me. And now I realize, for me uh, and other writers I've talked to, it's a compulsion. Yeah. Um, so now I've. It took me a while, but I finally learned to take the weekend off and do mindless things like yeah. trim the hedges. Yeah. And mm. things like that. And and then I used to say, I'm trimming the hedges. I should be writing. I don't want to be doing. <laughs> now I'm like, I'm trimming the hedges, and I'm not thinking about anything else but trimming the hedges. And, and it's wonderful, you know, so I'm actually like looking forward to weekends for the first time in my life. Uh, and, you know, because it used to be, you know, well, Monday morning's coming and I can get back to work mm. <laughs> because yeah. hey, I love my job. What can I say? I no, mean, I mean, Charles that... Schultz once said, somebody, somebody asked Charles Schultz once, you know, why don't you go take more vacations? Why don't you travel around the world? You've got millions and millions of dollars. You're one of the richest men in entertainment. And he said, I worked so many years to get to do what I'm doing now that this is all I want to do. I just want to draw peanuts. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Like, and, then- and, a, and a follow-up for that is now you mentioned before that obviously you, you your time spent on your novel is obviously longer than you doing a, a script for a comic or something like that. But which one do you find more difficult? Like is the, the shortened where you've got to get something out 
quicker, a little harder to work on, or is that easier to work on? You can. It's more the novel that's the harder part to work on. Well, comics are in my DNA. Mm. Uh, they they they're just easy. I mean, I, it's like a second language to me. So it's it's easy for me. Novels. I don't care how many novels you've written. They're hard. It's hard. It's a hard slog. And everybody gets to that middle passage, that middle part of the book where you just hate the book. You hate it. I wish this was over. I want to get, I want I want this done. I want this out of my life. And, and, um, and then you reach what I call the downslope. You reach the point where, okay, it's all coming together. I know how it's going to end. And mm. it's just a matter of getting to all the cool stuff that I've been building toward. And, and like on the Conan novel I'm on now, I'm on the downslope. I can't yeah. wait to get back to it and finish it. Mm. Yeah, that's but no, novels are, they're, they're tough, man. A lot of description in a novel, Chuck, compared to, I assume, writing a comic script. Like a lot of detail you've got to put into the into the novel, yeah? Yeah, but what's weird is, um, that's one thing I learned that surprised me, is that novels actually sometimes require less description than a comic script because I I can't be specific. You can't be too specific because mm. you want to allow the readers yeah. to see whatever it is they see in their mind. Yeah. But with a comic artist who you're writing the script to, yeah. you've got to be very specific. So a lot of times it includes a lot more description, mm. um, you know, so that, you, you know, not to Alan Moore them, not to like dump, tell sure. them how to draw or what to draw, but to completely inform them of what you need yeah. to make the story work. So, that's what's surprising about prose is, is, you know, how little description you can do. I mean, I've never described Levon Cade beyond the fact that he's tall and he wears work boots. That's, that's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, and yet even still, like, somehow that conjures an image, you know, like in the mind. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I read a novel once where it had these two guys and they were detectives and they were solving crimes. And on the next to last page, he informs us that one of them is black and gay. And I'm like, isn't that something I should have known on page one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spoiler, it's like reveal, the big reveal. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's not, you know, yeah, that, yeah. you, know, you got to get it. And, and then once you've got that first impression with the reader, you can never go back. Yeah. You can never go back and say, oh, her flowing blonde hair, if you never described her hair before. Yeah. Because yeah. It, because in 50 million readers, or, well, 50 million readers, I'm exaggerating myself, but in all a lot of readers' heads, she's a redhead. Another yes. one, she's a brunette. Another one, she's bald. I mean, you know. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah, the, the reader kind of paints, when you're reading a novel, you sort of cast it yourself, you know, the, the, right. the person. Um, uh, in our last conversation, Chuck, you mentioned Superman versus Aliens 2, which which I've just read. Uh, the great John Bogdanovov on Arjun. Yeah. yeah, great artist, great Superman artist. Um, now, in your story, um, you leaned hard into the fourth world. I mean, it's as much a new God storyline as a Superman one. Um, was it fun? Uh, yeah, I know at DC oh, yeah. you mostly did, you know, back-centric stuff, but was it fun to take a big swing in a different direction? Well, yeah, because uh, initially they wanted a, uh, a direct sequel to the Dan Jurgens yep. uh, Superman alien, and I said I won't do it. I said, because that's one of my favorite comics of all time. It's good. And it's so perfect. Mm. I would never want to touch it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I am unworthy of doing a sequel to that because I <laughs> love that comic so much. Yeah. I said, but hey, let me loose with Superman in the fourth world. Yeah. And I'm your man. 
Yeah. And they said, okay, go, go for it. Go crazy, which I did. I went nuts on that story. Oh, it's, 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 it's insane. And I'm sure uh, readers who love the fourth world stuff, like the Kirby stuff, it's so cool because um, you really get to see stuff that's going on there, more than just Darkseid. Darkseid's all through it, but I love right. the end when Darkseid's got like a whole stack of his people and they've got the aliens on their faces. He's kind of got them in storage. <laughs> I'm like, he's such a crazy bastard, Darkseid. Like... <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, and I had I had Bogdanov with Kevin Nolan on inks. I mean, yeah. that was comic book heaven for me. It was great. Um, now I want to do something. Um, I've always meant to mention to you. So we're going to take a trip in the time machine. In the seventies, when you were pitching to DC, sadly at the moment of the DC implosion, which we've covered before. Now I believe you're working security at one point around this period. What kind of comic ideas were you generating and pitching? We're just. Were you just hungry to get your hands on any DC property? Take us back to a hungry late 70s Chuck Dixon. <laughs> well, well, at that point, I wasn't even a security guard yet. I was right. working as a janitor. Right. Uh, I eventually moved up to management. Okay. In jan- janitorial <laughs> service. But, but, uh, but uh, still wearing an orange jumpsuit to work, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I you know, put my pennies aside and, 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 and take a couple of days off and go up to DC. Yeah. Never, you know, I, I think I went to Marvel one time, never got further than the lobby and I would go up and I didn't really pitch as much as say, is there anything you need to help with? Yeah. You know, is there any character no one wants to write? Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a pretty miserable experience because they would have you come up on a Wednesday and they would have a bunch of us in a conference room. Uh, they wouldn't even interview you individually, and they right. really wouldn't inter- interview you. They'd have two assistant editors come out to the conference room, and basically crush your dreams. Right. Tell you there's no chance. You know, uh, we're you know we're not publishing as many comics, and we're laying people off, and we're firing people, and you know you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of ever getting to comics. Wow. And, uh, so there really wasn't any pitching. <laughs> so it was it was a really tough time with their little folders of pitches. But, uh. No. Would you have taken you know, anything? Like if they'd said to you, you know, you've got to do, I don't know, reverse flash solo series, would you have said, yep, I'm your man? I would have done anything. I yeah. mean, I, I, I pitched uh, for Heathcliff and Ewoks comics at Marvel right. for a start. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if they had, you know, anything that they, you know, if they wanted me to write Here Comes Scooter, I would have written it. That seems like the right attitude, though, because you're trying to break in you know, you've got to, you know, so many people, like, they're looking for their start kind of thing. Like, you've just got to make the best of whatever it is you would get, especially in those yeah, times. Like, God. Yeah, you can't say it's Green Lantern or nothing, and you can't be a specialist. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's what the, one of the main reasons I've lasted as long as I have. I don't specialize. I just, yeah. I love the medium. I can write any comic story you want in the comic book medium, if it's funny animal or yeah. superhero or horror or war. I mean, I'll, I'll take a swing at it. Yeah, I mean, well, you've even done, you've done like humor with, um, you know, Simpsons comics and all that kind of stuff, like, yeah. which is a million miles away from, like, say, a Punisher or a Batman. Like, they, it's almost barely the same genre. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, well, those things always present a challenge. You know, could oh. you do this? Could you make this interesting? I mean, I I adapted Peter Schweitzer's book Clinton Cash into a graphic novel, and it was a challenge. I love it. Was that. a blast to work on, but it was a challenge to make you know you know what is essentially very dry material into something entertaining visually and, and to make it funny. Yeah. Which the book isn't very funny. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it is. I mean, like, it's a very satirical. Um, did you see that uh, Hillary and the daughter, I forget what her name is, have some show on now? Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, my Gutsy God. Gutsy Women. 
Uh, I love the fact that it's gutsy women and and uh, Chelsea has like I, I don't know a tattoo or a medallion or something with a Chinese symbol for intestines on it. <laughs> uh, honestly, when will this cash cow like dry up? Please, like you know, like well, you know, they, they you know their inter their international Clinton Foundation fund got shut down because they were afraid of going to jail, and so they got to find some way to bring all those millions in that they need to survive. I saw a hilarious thing on Twitter where it was, you know, that Megan the Stallion or whatever, whoever she is, she's sort of blabbering on for for ages, like like two minutes stream of consciousness stuff, and then it cuts to Hillary, who's just like stony faced, like it's it's, it's, and you just wonder what's going through her, like what have I got myself into here? (laughs) And then she tries to say that Chelsea's been listening to rap music since she was a child. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, you'd let really. your kid listen to that? <laughs> I'm sure I could just you, Jay Z's in the in the crib. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's, it's like it's like when Hillary pulled out the hot sauce from her purse because that allowed her to relate to black people. It's oh, like, it's and weird. I always have hot sauce in my purse. Yeah, sure you do. Yeah, it's it's. It, 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 I mean, it would be tragic if it wasn't just so amusing. Um, now, yeah. <laughs> Now, I did want to mention um, the NAM. Now, I, I was reading, um, I've pretty much read your NAM run. Now, I was wondering, when you were writing it, because you wrote it for a little while there, did you get some ideas off actual Vietnam vets? I imagine a lot of them were writing in for you or you were meeting them at the time at conventions. Um, yeah, I mean, I only took the book on because Larry Hama said I would do the homework because I felt bad about taking it on. Because Doug Murray, who created the title, was a, was in Vietnam. Yeah, and you know I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but but Larry said, you know, I have faith. You, you know, we have faith in you. You'll do the homework. And and then Wayne Van Zant, who was my artist on a lot of that run, um, he put me in touch with lots and lots of vets who I love talking to. Yeah. So if I had questions about details or if something, if a story I had, could this really have happened? Uh, you know, I would have a, I would be, have guys I could reach out to and talk to. And of course, I was always talking to any vet of any conflict yeah. i could ever talk to ever since i was a kid so um you know i was always you know oh you served oh uh, what was it like where where did you serve what yeah. branch were you in I'm, I'm always asking questions uh so a lot of it grew out of that but the thing is they they told me a lot of stories i couldn't use sure. in, in a code comic book and but i filed them in the back of my head and i a couple of months ago i completed a new Vietnam era graphic novel project, wow. which will be announced soon. Wow. And I got to use a lot of those stories um, that I never got to use in the Nam. Wow. I, w- I will be looking forward to that because it fascinates me as a conflict. And I, I don't know, I just, there's just something about it. Like you did a great sniper one shot about a crack sniper who basically gets lost in his own head. I felt that yeah. was, that felt very realistic. Like that could, that could happen in any modern war. Um, was that based on a, on a true story? Uh, not really, but that's when people ask me what's my what what I think the best thing I've ever written. It oh. was that issue. Uh, it was Nam sixty six. I wrote that in one sitting. Right. I sat down and wrote the whole thing beginning to end. Yeah. Um. And and I was so pleased with it. That's a great uh, story. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those times where I just felt like you know like God's hand was moving me. Yeah. You know, yeah. instead of sitting there going, well, what happens next? It's like uh, the whole story came to me like at one time. It's a great one. And, and I mean, I, once... think, I think I was doing my tax returns at the time, which was the. Because <laughs> if you remember, his targets were Viet Cong tax collectors. They were, yeah, they were. And then one guy <laughs> makes a comment to him and it, it spins him out badly. 
um, in, in, in his head. Um, you did a, There's a three-parter you did about an airman who gets captured and, spoilers, eventually killed by the villagers after a show trial. Um, was yeah. it tough selling kind of downbeat endings to editorial or was everyone on the same page that this was a serious book and portrayal of what, what went down in the NAM? Yeah, I mean, nothing against the DC War titles, which I love. Mm. Uh, these were not feel-good war comics. The NAM, you're trying to accurately represent, because it's unfair to the vets yeah, yeah. to represent the war any other way. And also, um, I wanted to show the commies as bad guys. Yeah. You know? Oh, hell yeah. They weren't, yeah. They weren't a good crowd. You know, uh, yeah. and I wanted to show them as enemies where a lot of things at the time, which were returning Vietnam, sort of portrayed the Viet Cong as either ciphers or, uh, you know, like, you know, well-meaning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well-meaning um... community organizers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were definitely community organizers. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah. The ones they didn't kill anyway. Yeah. They, they organized. Do you remember uh, the big Lebowski where he's like, the man in the black pajamas, worthy yeah. adversary? <laughs> I love that. I love that film. It's just so funny, the, the Vietnam vet there. Did you see the Ken Burns documentary? And what did you think of the. No, nah, I don't. I tend not to watch Ken Burns documentaries. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Look, you know what? It's it, it, like the footage, it, it's remarkable. Um, it does suffer from that thing where they want to tell us that we're we're bad for going there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if if yeah. you could just take that little bit out, the footage and stuff is incredible. You know what I mean? But there's yeah, a, yeah, but yeah. just the, the 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 version of the Vietnam War that we are told here in the United States, it's just mm. so wrong, yeah. and it's so um, dishonors and disrespects the guys that served. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know because they did an awesome job. And in the end, you know, they did win. We just sort of gave up the win. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Australians went there as well because we had yeah. it at the same time. Oh, I totally agree. Like, it's actually less here. I think here they, they've they sort of shown a lot more respect. But it's always that thing where if there's a documentary, they feel like they have to, like, sort of they have a narrative they want to tell. It annoys me, you know? Well, especially when they show, like, oh, the American public turned against the war and they show the war protesters. Well, I was alive at that time period. Mm. I never saw any war protesters. I yeah. never saw anybody protest the war. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it just didn't happen. You know, most of us were, you know, collecting paperback books to send over to them. You yeah. know, writing letters to guys serving. You know, stuff. We were flying the American flag. Yeah. Uh, my dad was a gunsmith, and he would he would find parts to make handguns, <laughs> and give them. Yeah. The people who had guys serving over there because they all wanted handguns, you know, and they weren't issued them. And you could just mail, you could mail a really? guy in Vietnam a 38 snub mose and, and, and a box of rounds. Right. You know, wow. Uh, Do you reckon it's so, that? I mean, yeah. Could, could I mean, we that? were involved in supporting the troops, you know. Yeah. Uh, everybody knew the war was ugly. Yeah. Everybody knew it was a bad scene, but, you know, we had to support our guys. Yeah. And, and what war isn't a bad scene? You know, really? Yeah. You know, like, this is the thing, like, oh, excuse me, like, uh, for all the wars that are so, you know, perfect and, like, morally great, like, every war's a war. Like, if you're over in the Ukraine right now and you're on the ground fighting, you know, God knows what, like the Russians, that's a bad yeah. scene. It's a terrible scene. Well, I, that's a particular the, – the way they fight war in that region, it's always a bad scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no uh, – yeah, there's no uh, – yeah, there's no gentleman's agreement between well, those it. two sides. I was thinking you you're mentioning how do you think like in the like late sixties you know we've seen so much footage of the 
the protests and all that stuff, but it, it feels like that they try to make out that was happening on every street corner of every city. Yeah. But you, yeah. you, you, you know what I mean? They extrapolate from the footage right. they've got, and right. they sort of—I don't know—I'm no expert, but I, I feel like they build a narrative all the time. Um, yeah. You know, and I—it's—it's I, I, it's like say I love the Beatles, but like not everyone was a massive hippie in the 60s. There were plenty of people, no. I guarantee, who were just working jobs, nine-to-five jobs, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I, the height of the Vietnam War protests, you know, 68, 69, I was in, you know, middle school, junior yeah. high school, and we had five hippies in our school Yeah, of, of about 1,500 students. Right, there you go. So, you know, yeah. it was not representative of anybody. Yeah, and that's, it, that's very interesting, and it kind of gets lost. Now, um... I've got a, you've got a question here, Rich. Sorry, go ahead, mate. Yeah, uh, so uh, Chuck, um, just to get off that uh, cheery topic, um, <laughs> uh, I just want to get your opinion on something. Dave and I have had this discussion a, a few times on the show, but what what's your opinion? What's your thoughts on why so many writers and creators today are incapable of taking criticism for what it is, which is criticism? You know, um, to today, like, um, if you don't like something, then you don't like it because of your bigotry or your hatred. Uh, now, I mean, I'm I'm assuming you've you've taken criticism, you've been given criticism in your uh, long career. Are you upset that uh, you weren't able to use the ism shield uh, during your career? Well, I've never apologized or defended my work. I mean, you either like it or you don't like it. I either speak to you or I don't speak to you. I can't expect everybody to like everything I've written. Uh, but today, it's like it's not your criticism isn't valid because of who you are. You know, that's ridiculous. You know, maybe I think that your comic book sucks because it sucks. You know, because you didn't put the work in, or you're not very talented, or you don't understand craft. You know, there's a lot of reasons to criticize this work, but because because they're using this, their political agenda as a shield, you know, I mean, if you write a sucky feminist comic, it didn't suck because it was feminist. You know, you can obviously, I mean, I'll read books and comics and watch movies that I don't necessarily agree with if they're well done and entertaining. Mm. Uh, but if they're crap, they're crap, even if they agree with my political side of the point. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of work, you know, I see work by conservatives that I think sucks. Uh, and you know, and and I will say that you know, yeah. not publicly. I don't like to criticize <laughs> other comics because I'm a, I'm in comics. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like pissing in the pool. But but you know, generally, you can't defend your work by saying everybody who doesn't like it is wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it, it. Comes up a lot these days. Like, <clears throat> um, some people, Chuck, just can't take what is at times very mild. It's like Jesus Christ, like. Uh, you know, I, I've I've put books out there on Amazon, and I've I've gotten uh, reviews at times which w- would sting a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's you, you're throwing entertainment out there. Like people react how they want to react. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I, the most common criticism I get on Levon Cade is is that uh, you know he's not perfect. You know, he makes a lot of mistakes. And I was like, I didn't like the book because he made so many mistakes and he caused so many of his own problems. And I'm like, that's kind of the point of the series. Yeah, well, most people create their own problems. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like real life. This guy isn't a Mary Sue. You know, yeah. he's not a paragon of virtue. He's not, you know, the perfect man. I, I never meant him to be that way. Yeah, he's kind of like, um, you remember you always talk about Frank Castle, kind of like a walking plot device kind of thing. Like, 
you know, yeah. he's awesome. Like, but like, yeah, if, if if everything was perfect and there was no stakes and he won everything easily, it'd be kind of dull, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you, if you ever get a chance to see the first remake of Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson, Same you watch that movie and it's like, he caused, he made everything worse in that movie. Every place <laughs> he showed up, he made every single situation worse. <laughs> and people died and were injured and everything else because if he had stayed home that day, everything would have been fine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, Chuck, I did want to mention, um, basically since the last time we've spoken to you, um, I've gotten heavily into your G.I. Joe run. Um, now, which I've always wanted to, um, and but I've made the decision. Now, I did my research. I know you did a few issues with Devil's Jew before IDW got the license. Did that then lead to IDW reaching out to you when they got the GIJ license? Uh, no, I, I, I think... Um, no, I didn't really have any relationship to it. When, when IDW... When I first learned that IDW was going to get the license, yeah, um, I contacted them and said, "Look, um, I know Larry's going to be writing it, yeah, but if you have any, you know, if, if there's something he doesn't want to write, or you have any extra material or anything else, I'd be interested." And they and they said, "Well, we were just getting ready to call you." <laughs> oh, really? There you go. And I think I think Larry had more to do that with that than anyone. Yeah. Um, now take us through your time on. Jojo, you seem to be having a whale on, of, a, of a time. The books crackle with energy. Um, were you familiar with the G.I. Joe property via Larry's comics in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, because I was I was working for Larry. Uh, he was my editor yes. on Savage Sword of Conan at the time that the G.I. Joe books were at the height of their popularity. And and everybody, everybody in the comic book industry was reading them, whether they'll admit it or not. Yeah. You know, they were reading them because this was – it was it was the top selling book in comics. Wow! Uh, it was outselling X Men, which That's Marvel crazy. never wanted to acknowledge. Yeah. And uh, so everybody was reading them, and you know, it's Larry. So you're reading them and you're learning a lot from Larry about yeah. storytelling and, and all the rest of it. And plus, they were just they were just a blast. They were right. Fun, fun yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um. Now I think it's really exciting that you guys were kind of doing a soft modern reboot like Cobra is more of an existential threat at the beginning, a sort of a shadow of a rumour as opposed to what he we saw in the 80s comics. Was that a big part, like a really interesting part for you in doing it? Like you were rebooting it all and reintroducing it. Well, they kind of left it up to us the degree to which we'd reboot it. Mm. And I brought up early on, I said, I don't really want to do a reboot. Yeah. Uh, more of like a reimagining. Yep. And I said... The only problem with Larry's run is that he was tied to toy releases. Yep. So, first of all, he has to introduce G.I. Joe and Cobra simultaneously. He has to do that. Yeah. And then he has to, in this issue, introduce the Cobra his tank. And in yes. this issue, introduce some cannon or some airplane. And the work's brilliant. I mean, within those restrictions... He did a much. He wrote a much better toy tie-in comic than any toy tie-in comic ever deserved to be written. Hundred uh, percent. But he did have those restrictions, and I said, "We're free of all that. Mm. We are free of all. We can just reimagine his world, dramatized from the beginning, where GI Joe has no idea who Cobra is." Yeah. And I said, "And it's so cool because the readers know." Yeah. But Joe doesn't. You know, the GI Joe guys don't. And then, and then we're free to use all of the characters all of the equipment, yeah. you know, we're not tied to any of that. And so let's just go nuts. And that's what we did. 
I, I, you, I so hear you. Robert Atkins was a great partner for your stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really yeah. good, man. Like a lot of night covert action. Um, I thought it like has he done a lot of other work? Because I was like, man, this guy's art really matches with your style. Well, he was a big Joe fan, right? So I mean, he was he was just at that right age. You know, he was a kid yeah. when this stuff was coming out. Yeah. So he was like the perfect guy, and yeah, I mean, he, he could draw the weapons, the equipment, or all. I mean, that's the key. I mean, yeah. Got to be able to draw that stuff convincingly. So I knew with a guy like that. You know, I can go crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and and then I was always sending him reference. I mean, I, I never ask an artist to draw something I don't have a picture of somewhere. Right. And, and in a lot of cases, I had to draw pictures. Yeah. Uh, so I got all these crazy sketches I had to do to to make you know to invent stuff that we hadn't seen before. That's cool. Uh, yeah. I I thought Helix was a very interesting character. Take us through. You changed up the Snake Eyes Scarlet dynamic that we're used to, and you partnered in mission wise with Helix a lot. Was that a big decision? Uh, yeah, they just sort of said, you know, play with it, you know. And Helix, you know, they kind of gave me her full formed. Yeah. And but I really dug the character. Cool. Character. Uh, you know, and you know, I, I don't know. I just sort of took off. Yeah. Uh, but 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 always keeping in mind. You know, Larry, I mean, I, I kind of understood. No one understands Larry Hama entirely. Right, <laughs> He's yeah. He's a very complicated guy. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't bet on the next thing Larry was going to say. You know, if you asked Larry what the weather was like, I wouldn't bet, you know, I wouldn't even have an idea what he was going to say. Yeah. So, um, but 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 I know it was all about, the, you know, the, the brotherhood, the loyalty, you know, uh, showing the American military man in a, in a positive light mm -hmm. and, and all the rest of it. And I knew that was at the core of it. So as long as I never strayed from that, we were good. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, like through the run, we see favorite franchise things like his tanks, trouble bubbles, Zartan appear, but it's all parceled out and not delivered at once. Was that sort of key to your chance of success? Like you kind of almost spoon feed it out like over time, <laughs> you know, which I like, yeah. I'm sort of like, it's because it, it's the opposite of, as you say, Larry had to sort of just pump it all out either at once or as he was told by Hasbro to do it. Like, you know, you had yeah, the law, I mean, you know, I mean, at the beginning when he's writing G.I. Joe, he has no idea visually. Yeah. You know where they're going or, or what the depth of this universe is going to turn out to be because and Hasbro didn't either. They didn't know how successful his toy line was going to be and, and and as it went from success to success it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger yeah you know and he had and, and which ultimately led to us having this enormous universe to play with it's great man like i tell you what um killing bazooka it was option paralysis a lot of times i mean which character am i going to use and a lot of times i would i would meet uh guys who were joe fans yeah. who were just back from afghanistan or just back from iraq and they would say, man, I really want you to use this character. And I just write it down. Next time I wrote, I'd throw that character in. Oh. I remember a couple of Coast Guard guys came to me and says, you never used the Coast Guard guy. I said, okay, next time. <laughs> the Coast, Coast Guard, Guard guy. Guy. Is that life, Lifeguard? Is that Lifeguard, I think his name is? Yeah. 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 yeah he's a good character. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, something that's, that got me, killing Bazooka, that was a tough call for the home team. Um, yeah, and that was editorially driven. Yeah, they, they, yeah. For whatever reason, they wanted him gone. Jesus, like, what is wrong with them, Chuck? Because, like, uh, like I when, when I was reading your issue, and I'm like, wow, Bazooka got shot there. Oh, he's still alive. He's still all right. And then it was like, bang, bang, bang. And I was like, he's looking pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that came down, it came down from Hasbro. They wanted him out. I don't know, you know, was it the Bazooka name? I, I have no idea. It's crazy. I have no idea what. 
Um, I noticed Barbecue and some others bought it as well on a trip to Springfield. In the second series, I noticed a lot of Joes do, in fact, get wiped out. It's carnage because of Cobra Civil War. So um, interesting. Now, I had a question. The tsunami issue where Cobra sets off the nuke and there's a tsunami. Were you inspired by the 2004 tsunami that happened in Thailand and Indonesia, or was that just coincidence? I, I don't know. I don't know the time because I, I I read about tsunamis previous to the one that happened. Yeah. Uh, because that was fascinating. Yeah. You know, wake up in the morning and all the water's gone. Where'd it go? You know. Um. So yeah, I don't. I I real. I can't remember the timeline there. It I don't. Be- I don't think. I don't think it was inspired by that no. because that's a little ghastly. Oh, it was. It was. It was nuts um, when that actually happened. I remember. I was like in bed about to fall asleep and I heard it on the radio that it happened. And when I heard the description, I thought, that sounds serious. And I went to sleep and I woke up and realized just the extent of the disaster. I wasn't even 100% sure what a tsunami was, you know, before yeah. then, you know, and it was just awful. Um, I love the issue where you had Helix and Snake Eyes teleport back to Cobra Central. They follow the teleport back and they're just <laughs> gunning them down. I'm loving it. You, you've actually, this is in the base, the two of them against all of Cobra and they, they hold their own, Chuck. That must have been a lot of fun. Like, you know. That kind of stuff is so much fun to write where you just take these badass characters and you just back them up against the wall, you know, and then you, you know, you go for the samurai ending, you know, one against all fight. Exactly. Uh, I, I love that stuff. <laughs> it's a great, like, dude, it's a great issue out of all. I've read a lot of G.I. Joe. Larry's stuff, obviously, is top of the pile, but that, that issue is is awesome. Um, was Baroness <laughs> a fun one to write? Because she's one of my favorite characters. Was Baroness a blast? Yeah, I like Baroness. I like the, the relationship with Destro. I, that's where I ran into trouble with Devil's Do, because um, I, I wrote a scene where um, Destro and uh, Baroness have a, a, a lover's argument yeah. and Cobra commander has to break it up because they've drawn weapons. Right. I mean, they're getting ready to kill one another. Yeah. Fair enough. And, and my editor at devil's do said, but they're in love. Oh, Jesus. And I'm like, man, you're obviously never been married. You know, you can get really, really mad at somebody you're in love with. And, and Baroness, said, you know, these people are psycho. Yeah. I mean, when they get mad, the guns and knives are going to come out. Well, well, Baroness, get on her bad side. She's going to off you. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. She's going to off you and step over your body. What I love about her is she's so unashamedly evil. Like, there's just, <laughs> you know, like, she enjoys it. You know what I mean? Like, and right. I, I guarantee you, I, and I, and no offense to IDW, but after you've gone and stuff, they tried to do various things with G.I. Joe where they sort of, like, it's weird, Chuck. I mean, I don't know how you can get away from... You've got to do the troops well. You've got to respect the flag. You've got to respect the nation. They sort of stepped away from that, and they were kind of almost apologizing. And it's like, I don't think you know the audience. Like, how can you not no. understand this? Yeah. You know, you've, you've got you've got to understand the audience for those books. I mean, they want GI Joe the way they want it. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, you know? no, 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 nothing wrong wrong at all. But the funny thing is, Chuck. Like, I don't know if you've seen in recent years, like. You'll have a villain doing villain things, like Baroness being evil. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe Baroness blew up a school. It's like, she's Baroness. <laughs> you know, yep. like, she, like these villains, um, who literally are like cartoon villains in a way, they they do evil things. And it's not like the writer is, um, you know, evil himself or herself for writing them. Like, they're, they're, they're baddies. 
Like, right. yeah, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to get your perception. Like, have you noticed this in recent years? This kind of thing where they try to critique the bad guys as if the writer is actually bad. Yeah, you can't confuse the. I mean, I know writers who are concerned about that. Like, I'm writing this character, and I don't want people to think that I believe what they're saying or I feel that. I said, you can't think about those things when you write. Yeah. You're creating a, a world in your head and putting it down on paper for others to read. You can't be second guessing. I don't want the readers to think that I believe this terrible thing that this guy just said or I endorse what they yeah. just did. I mean, that's nuts. You just write it. You don't you don't owe anybody an apology. Well, yeah, otherwise what would happen um is the the bad well, what happens what's happening now yeah. is this bland yeah. you know, all vanilla entertainment we're seeing now. Yeah, like you would soften the like you would soften the baddies so much that now they're barely bad. You know, they're just I mean, you know, vanilla. In in in, in, in Levon's Prey, you know, the book just before the most recent book, mm. I introduced this character. And this guy is the most obnoxious, most racist character you could possibly imagine. <laughs> but he's smart. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. when I got done with the book, my proofreader, the guy I always send these to, uh, Michael Hutchison, he said, I hope you're keeping this guy around. He yeah. goes, because I hate him, but I love him. Yeah. Well, that's and it. I thought, you know what? You're right. This guy's so interesting. I can't. Get... So I used him extensively in the most recent book. And it's like, okay, readers just take it the way it is. There are people like this, you know, uh, and I'm not endorsing him, obviously, but, you know, this is what fiction is about. Well, yeah, like, I mean, exactly. And like you use Cobra as an example. They're flat out terrorists who want to destroy the world, basically, you know, or rule the world like through their crazy evil like, you can't just have them be nice guys and everything's just all perfect in PC. Like, that's just not the way it operates. You know? Well, not to harp on Devil's Do, but that was another problem I had was um, in the way I presented Cobra, they said that they were too over the top <laughs> because they <laughs> said, um, you know, this, just have an organization, a terrorist organization, and all they are is evil, and, and, and you need to downplay this, like, world conspiracy. And I'm like... You know, have you been asleep since 9-11? <laughs> Thank you. Are you aware yeah. of the world we live in, right? We are living in the world of Cobra. Yeah. You can't yeah. you can't fly on an airplane without a two-hour wait because of Cobra. Yeah. You know, you can't mail a package that weighs over 13 ounces because of Cobra. Yeah. I mean, Well, right, yeah, and I've got, yeah, I've got a little bit of extra there, but so... Regarding, I was reading through the IDW collections of, of your run, which collect both your run and Mike Costa's excellent Cobra run, which has a big scene, spoilers with the death of Cobra Commander. How much did you guys have to coordinate just to make sure you weren't stepping on each other's stories? Uh, yeah, there was, it was you know, a bunch of conference calls. Yeah. And uh, I guess today they would have been Zoom calls, but we had a bunch of conference calls. And um, yeah, we coordinated. I mean, we played well together. And it was like, well, you know, you, you know, I'm going to do this and you do this and I'll end my story here and you begin it here. And, and we, you know, we did okay. Yeah, you did I, I fantastic. Mean, you've read the whole thing. It, I think it goes together. Seamlessly. Oh my God, it does. And the way they've collected it, it really, it sort of complements each other. Um, yeah. And I love that scene you've got, which is, I've just passed this point where they're on the moon and they write, help us, Cobra, after he dies. And I was just like, this is just gold. Like, this is actually funny. Like, I was like, don't save them, screw them. Like, they can stay up there for all I care. Like, 
Yeah, I, I spent about a year working toward that scene. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, now, just before we leave, Joe, Joe um, we recently did uh, America's Elite on the show, which I believe was a couple of years before your IDW run. It was very much um, in the shadows of 9-11. Like, you could feel it in the pages. Um, and, I, and we just had the anniversary. And I, I recall um, when it happened, it, for a couple of years, it felt like we were living in a nightmare, you know, yeah. after 9-11. Now, I know that Frank Miller had a Batman pitch with him going, with Batman going after Al-Qaeda uh, post 9-11. Did you have one of those scripts at the time, Chuck, where you were like, I want to do that or not? No, no, I, I made it very clear to both Marvel and DC that I wasn't interested in doing any 9-11 related material sure. with their established characters because they were all doing these like memorial or commemorative books. Yeah, I, yeah. I just thought it was in poor taste. Tacky, uh, almost. Yeah. This is, you know, this is the real world. Yeah. You know, people died, people suffered, people continue to suffer to this day over mm. that event. Mm. And I'm not going to trivialize it by, you know, putting Batman or Captain America in, in it. Yeah. You know? I mean, you're a better man than me because I've got poor impulse control. And if I'd been at the wheel, no, I, I mean, if people were, look, I get what you're saying 100% and you, you're right. Um, but if I had did have a Batman or Captain America or Punisher, I couldn't have resisted doing it. But the thing is, that's fantasy. And yeah. reality is people died, like lots of people died. And it's kind of right. like you, if you... You know, you know what I mean? If you lean too hard into the fantasy, it's like, well, people are still dying. We're, we're actually sending troops over there, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a fine line, isn't there, Chuck? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why G.I. Joe works, because it's pure military fantasy. Mm. You don't want to have it veer toward reality too much. Yeah. Because that's a disservice to our guys, because our guys, you know, they're they're flesh and blood. They're not G.I. Joe. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm always cognizant of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to treat treat this material with respect, uh, and if you can't, just don't do it. A hundred percent. Like, I mean, they had that guy, and I'll never forget him. He hates America. He hates the flag. Let's give him the GI Joe title. And it's like, like I'm I, I'm still my mind's still spinning. Like, who made this decision? Who who thought this was the great idea? You know. Like, yeah, it would be like giving the Transformers to somebody who hates robots. It's like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Well, they're not going to be invested. It's going to come through in the work. You know what I mean? And the fans. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you know. Well, they're going to make sure it comes through in the work. I mean, you've got a lot of people writing superheroes who don't believe in heroes. So, yeah. uh, you know, what's, why? Why are you doing this? Go write, go write your own miserable comics. Please. I always say to those, to those people, like, and I'm going to throw a name in there, Bendis. And with his, like, constant, like, no, I'll, I'll say this. So he's he spammed the world for, like, 30 years, 20, 30 years with his superhero shit. And finally, he's like, well, I'm going to pick up stakes and go and do my independent stuff at, like, Dark Horse. I'm like, please do. P -p -p please. P please do that. And then whoever wants to buy your stuff there, feel free. And leave right. Batman and Superman alone, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at that point now, Chuck, where I'm like, I, I'm never going to be the guy who says, don't do your own thing. Please go and do your own thing, but just don't always have to ruin the favorite franchises, you know? Yeah, you, you, you can't, you take these things over and you're just a steward until the next guy does it. Yeah. And you have to keep, you know, can't break it or change it. I mean, I wrote a lot of iconic characters. I never once tried to make them my own or my own version. Yeah. I tried to make them the best version that I could working in the shadow of people that worked before me. Yeah. 
I've got a question for you on Batman. Well, you know, you had a very long run on Batman, and obviously he was a, a favourite of yours before you even came on. Were you guys, when you were doing it, did you, like you had your Frank Miller who kind of changed the whole game with Batman in the 80s, and you came on a, a few years after that. Were you sort of just doing, did you have like an inspiration thing that you were basing your Batman on, or was it just accumulation of all the reading you'd done or what? Yeah, I was just, you know, the, the Batman that lives in my head. Yeah. And then a, a lot of talking with Graham Nolan, uh, yeah. particularly when we were working together, because Graham's like a Batman scholar. Right. And uh, we would have, you know, you know, everybody's got their own idea of Batman. Graham Nolan and I would have a lot of discussions about Batman, particularly when he started working on it. Yeah. Uh, with me on Detective. And, uh, you know, little things about our, our different approach to Batman. I mean, you know, everybody's got their own idea. Uh, I have my idea of the character. He had his. They were remarkably close together, but sure. there were some differences. But I always bowed to Graham's judgment because he's a real Batman scholar. I mean, he's really, really into the character. Uh, I mean, I was too, but not to the extent Graham Graham still is. And and so, um, you know, we had to find a common ground there. Yeah, and you and what you came up with was a really classic Batman. So. Yeah. You know something that I find hilarious? You know there's this revisionist history where they're like, oh, the 90s was so bad for comics. I'm like, were you reading DC Batman comics and the Bat Family? Because they were damn strong, you know? Yeah, yeah, they were an island of sanity. <laughs> yeah, t- but totally. Like, so it's 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 one of those things that it always amuses me that when we go and look back at segments of history, certain things become popular to remember. And remembering comics sucked in the 90s is a huge disservice to so many of the good comics that came out and would have sold like gangbusters. I guarantee your Batman's outselling Batman now easily, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of junk in the nineties because they got a lot of opportunists jumped into the business and the business was being run by speculators and things like that. Nobody was concerned about the quality of the comics. Just what special gimmick can we put on the cover? Well, at DC, we were never concerned about that. We were concerned about, you know, giving the readers something to read that was interesting and entertaining and engaging you know, the best stuff we could work on. And there's a, there's a lot of awesome stuff at DC done in the 90s. 100% agree. 100% agree. Uh, now, Rich, you've got a question about the novels? Um, yeah, so, um, you, so obviously, again, Chuck, we're going back to the novels. You're busy, you know, you've pumped up quite a few. I'm just curious if you were approached to do a, a Brandon Sanderson, right, and, and continue someone's book series or or character, what, what, what series would you just jump at no 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 questions asked you're like yep i'll continue doing this book even though it's not mine boy i don't you mean a novel series yeah boy i don't know i really don't know that's an interesting yeah i don't know i don't know what yeah i don't know what i would be suited for i mean i know things that i like but would i want to go near them uh well i guess it's just a fantasy thing maybe you're not good at it but you want to have a crack yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah somebody asked me recently given my choice when i read sherlock holmes or james bond and i said well, it would be bond Okay. Because I, I couldn't outdo what Doyle did on Holmes. Uh, no, I'm not saying that I could outdo what Fleming did, but it'd be so much fun to do. Yeah, uh, I could see that. You know, it's more, it would be more in my wheelhouse than, than Holmes would be. Yeah. Holmes would be, I reckon, tricky. Uh, like oh, yeah. a lot of mysteries. And like that's a lot of, you have to think a lot, a hell of a lot, you know, coming up with all those mysteries and stuff all the time. James Bond, you could kind of do more as an action sort of set piece kind of thing. I could see that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more of a pastiche, and and there's there's more to explore. Uh, you know, with Holmes, there's less to yeah. explore. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Now, uh, 
we've seen the way cinema um, has changed since the dominance of the Marvel studio model. Um, as both a viewer and a creator, do those Marvel movies interest you, or have you lost a bit of interest in the execution, Chuck? As soon as Tony Stark died, I lost all interest <laughs> in the Marvel movies. I think um, the only one, I think they're doing another Ant-Man. I'm they looking are. forward to that, because I love those movies. But I, I really haven't seen anything since then. Not Nothing interests me. Yeah. My youngest son keeps me up to date. Well, they did this and they did that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say, well, what about this? And he goes, yeah, that was kind of sucky. <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, the last Thor movie was weak, very weak. Um, yeah. you, you know, like they're really, they got, I, I mean, I've enjoyed the movies for a long time, but when they got rid of Tony and they got rid of Cap and they start replacing them with sort of people that like, you know, uh, I don't know. They're just not like I can't get excited about Echo or about like the you know. There's just characters where I'm like I don't even care about these characters in the comics, let alone in the yeah, movies. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, anyway. So um, now I've got a question. What do you think of the boys TV show? Have you seen that? Because that's very dark no. and uh, yeah. No, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. It's, um, it's insane, Chuck. Like, um, yeah. I, you'll either love it or hate it. It's it's one of those shows, you know? Like, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, Rich, you've got a question about European comics. Yes. Your, your passion. My, my final question there, Chuck. Now, I mean, obviously, as a kid, we all sort of grew up with Asterix and Oblix and Tintin and the Smurfs and all that. But, I mean, uh, recently, I've been really getting into uh, French comics. Uh, we've just recently read Undertaker, and this week we're doing The Campbells, which is a swashbuckler. Have you have you gotten into any like French or European uh, comics? Uh, is there any that you enjoy? Well, yeah, because I mean, um, uh, Cinebooks has been publishing a lot of uh, French comic and Belgian comic albums in English for the first time, so I'm finally able to read like all the Lucky Luke's. Uh, oh yes, Lucky Luke. Uh, the, the the blue coats, you know, series like that, and um, which kind of got me back. I was I kind of got me back into French comics. So I started, you know, running up my bill at Amazon France, and I bought a <laughs> bunch of stuff that's in French, but it's comics. So what the hell? Mm. Uh, one I like was uh, Eagles of Rome. It's just a gorgeous, uh, I think, six part graphic novel series about uh, ancient Rome, cool. and another one called Ah uh, Le Sauvage. Uh, it's it's perfect for me. It's the um, the French army in Mexico uh, under Maximilian. And it's just gorgeously drawn. And I love those oddball periods of history like that. And they just researched the hell out of it. And it's basically like an action cavalry western uh, cool. set in that period. And it's awesome. But, uh, but I've been picking up quite a few uh french albums i've always i've always looked at europe well i, I like comics for anywhere in the world as long as they're mm. good i mean i love italian comics so i read manga so yeah yeah do, do you think it's odd that the the french seem to do better western comics than uh americans at the moment well there's nobody here that seems to care about that i mean they do they do better historical comic books period i mean mm. there's like this I, I i'm sure you've seen it there's this craze for historical comics over there uh, you know, comics about, you know, World War II naval battles and things yeah. like that. I, I just, I eat that stuff up. But, you know, we don't, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not serious about comics at all here for the real. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's superheroes. It's the fact that comics were condemned to being a, a children's literature kind of thing. They were never mm. seen as a grown-up art form, no matter what they do. 
Mm. And having, you know, superheroes run around half naked or be gay is not growing up the medium. Uh, yeah, well, I know I know the French really look down on the superhero comics. Well, they should. Yeah, they, they're like, no, never do a superhero comic. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's it's like it's like it's like jazz. It's another American medium that isn't respected at home. That's a good point. Wow. Um, now that that is good stuff. Now we're just wrapping up. We've got uh, questions from Michael Kellishim, who's come up with some great questions. I must say, Michael, um, get brace in for this, Chuck. So here here's a question. So uh, his first one, he, and he he comes in real hot. This is a guy who comes in of a long run with his with his questions. So. Question one, the comic book industry has devolved into an extreme PC virtue signaling woke fest where creators are hired and fired exclusively on their political beliefs. Beloved characters are co-opted for soapbox speeches and sales are propped up with gimmick variant covers. Would you agree that this is a sign that Spectre, Cobra and Team Rocket have joined forces to exterminate our great American tradition of superhero comic books? Is that a question or a speech? Um, <laughs> both. <laughs> That's a yeah. Um, I, what is he asking? Uh, well, I, I think he really wanted to have a. I, I, I think it was a speech um, covering a lot of the stuff we've said, and then he's saying, "Is is is Cobra behind it?" Basically, Chuck. I think is <laughs> is it all a Cobra plan? <laughs> no, I just think it's a it's an understand. It's a result of um, American public school education, uh, yeah. where you know they've been indoctrinating people for decades. <laughs> and this is the end result of it. I think also we can blame uh, uh, the prevalence of Ritalin, <laughs> even to children at an early age. I love it. Yep, um, it's kind of like lunatics have taken you know control of the asylum in a way. I always think like it's it's like the toddlers with their crayons have kind of got gotten hold of the the means of production. Um, uh, now, question two: Johnny Depp famously said he would never work for Disney again, even if they paid him three hundred million dollars and a million alpacas. Now, I love this question. If Tom Brevo crawled on his hands and knees, chicken shit uh, hat in hand, and begged, you, and, and begged you, Chuck, to come back to Marvel, how many alpacas would it take to bring you back? Oh, at least $100 million. Yeah, yeah, definitely. At least $100 definitely. Million. And we don't have to be, all have to be of particular colors. Yeah, indeed. Uh, <laughs> different question here. Who is the better photographer, Jimmy Olsen or Peter Parker? That's a good question. Wow. That's a good question. That's an unfair I question. I have the sense that Jimmy takes more time. Yeah, I said. <laughs> well, it's kind of established. He just takes a lot of pictures and hopes a few of them turn out. <laughs> well, yeah, often he has to place the camera. Spider Man has to place the camera and do crazy shit, whereas Jimmy is the man on the street, like snapping away. Exactly. You know, so yeah, yeah. Jimmy's a better. He can compose his pictures. Spider Man can't. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what Spider Man needs is he needs to hire someone. You know, he yeah. needs he needs to put someone on a retainer so they can take the pictures of him, so he doesn't have to, you know, do that. Uh, now, well, next, when you think uh, of it, they're all selfies. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I, I know. It's I kind of can understand why Jay Jonah's like not another Spider Man, you know, picture because how many Spider Man pictures do you need, like you know, on a daily basis? Um, okay, next <laughs> next question. This is a good one, and I'm actually interested in this. He, uh, Michael, recently came across an old 1993 Marvel Bullpens bulletin from Don Daly where he mentions a Punisher retreat featuring himself, Stephen Grant, Larry Hummer, and the legend Chuck Dixon. How dark did these retreats get? Were there skulls in your eyes? And did Larry Hummer bring his gun or at least his Three Stooges VHS? There you go. <laughs> well, I, I'm certain Larry was armed because uh, he usually, <laughs> well, he always was. Yeah. Um, yeah, they 
they didn't go so well. Uh, really? I mean, we the end result was good, but um, I shouldn't even tell this story, but I will. Yeah. Um, the first time we sat down, I mean, I'd known Larry for a while. I knew Steven a little bit. Sure. And Don and um, I think it was Tim Toohey at the time, assistant editor, they were fooling, they were on the phone or fooling with something. They, they got us a hotel room to meet in, uh, which was a big deal for Marvel. Uh, uh-huh. DC used to take us away to resorts. Marvel Marvel rented a hotel room. Yeah. So um, Larry turns to me and says, I've never written The Punisher before. Uh, what are his three calibers? <laughs> and I said, 12 gauge, 45, and 223. And he goes, yeah, that's not bad, except I'd give him a 308. And I said, you know, that's probably a better choice than mine. And then Steven speaks up and says, well, I'd give him a 25 caliber. And we both just looked at him. <laughs> 25 caliber? It's a purse gun. <laughs> yeah, it's no Frank Castle. So it was. Uh, that's the difference between the, the writers. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Like, some of you were more, much more into the weaponry and knew a lot more about it kind of thing, yeah. So different yeah, I mean, I knew, yeah. I knew what Larry meant when he said, what are his three calibers? Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, next question is, uh, Marvel are reprinting some cross-gen titles to keep the copyright alive, but still no way of the rat, Elkazadar, or Brath. If the copyright lapses, do you and the artists reclaim ownership? No, nah, Disney owns it outright. I mean, they yeah. came, they came, and uh, it was a fire sale. There was one other bidder. They outbid that guy easily. Yeah, and they bought everything, uh, I, so they own it. And yeah, I guess they'll reprint some of this stuff occasionally to, to maintain trademark. Do, do, you, get any, do you get a cut nah, of any of those reprints? Nothing. nothing. I, I, I don't think I got. I'll be surprised if they reprinted my stuff. I got comp copies. I mean, right. they tend to forget you worked on this stuff. And the thing that irked me about the first trade was it was to present the biggest selling titles in cross-gen, except it's not true. El Cazador was the biggest selling mm. uh, premiere at cross-gen by far, yeah. but they didn't include that. Yeah, so it's politics really, isn't it? Like it's, it's just, it's just bullshit office politics basically. Yeah, or, or they didn't care. Yeah, or just ignorance. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he's got another quote. Tom Brevoort gets hammered on this show. I, I hope he listens. Uh, he says, uh, he, he's actually got this question. Just what did you do to Tom Brevoort that he hates you so much? Did you poop in, at his, in his coffee, laugh at his stupid hat? I, I Well, he didn't have a hat when I first met him. Really? Um, I I just think I must have reminded him of somebody that like, beat him up in the schoolyard or something. I don't know. Um <laughs> My buddy Gary Quapas, who I worked with on Savage Sword for so long, he said, you know, uh, it's your size. You know, you're 6'3", you're a big imposing guy, you appear in their doorway and you scare them. Yeah. And and then they decide they don't like you because you, you scare them. And I don't know why. I never did anything to the guy, but he just really, really didn't like me. It's crazy, man. Like uh... He's not the only one. I mean, there's a lot of editors just did not like me. I mean, just had it out for me. I was like, what did I do to you? I, what I find so odd about it, Chuck, is like we've been chatting for years, and you—you you are a nice person. It's very obvious. You're personable. You get the work in on time. Like it's like Jesus Christ. Like what is the problem? You know, like you know, I don't get I don't it. Know. 
It's weird. Because all I care about is the work. I never played office politics or gossip or any of that. So I never did got involved in any of that stuff. I never picked sides. Sometimes you know, that's like, what they don't like. Funnily enough. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, working maybe. in companies, sometimes I'm not political at all either. And sometimes that it's almost like those who are very invested do not like that, you know, because you're about the work. You're about getting the book out, you know. Yeah. Which I really, think there's a lot of self esteem issues too. Self-esteem, oh. Jesus. You, at a certain point, a, a grown adult has to take charge of themselves. I'm sorry. Like, yes. you, you know, you know, like, come on. Like, we're not in the schoolyard. Uh, next yeah. question is, uh, which comic or toy did you have as a kid that you wish you still had today? Wow, from back uh, in the day. I, I don't remember. Um, this is what I think about all the time. It's sad. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys in Australia ever got the TV show The Rifleman. I know of it, it but I didn't watch it. It was a Western in the 60s, and I had a Rifleman playset, which had a a little Rifleman and his son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ranch house and a stable and fence and cowboys and cattle, and I I love that thing. Yeah. I love that. My dad was was a big fan of that show. I know that for a fact, Uh, so we must have My favorite TV show of all time. Yeah? Okay, cool. It's it's a lot of people's favorite, one of their favorite Westerns. Did you like Bonanza? Because we got a lot of Bonanza, like... Hell of a lot. Yeah, I wasn't as big on Bonanza because it, it was like, you know, it seemed like after a while, every week they introduce a new woman who wanted yeah. to either marry Hoss or Adam or, you know, the father, and then she would die or turn out to be a criminal or run away. Or, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm at, I want to see shoot him up. I want to yeah. see the rifleman <laughs> kill the three guys who showed up in town at the beginning of the story. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I hear, I hear, and, and believe you me, having watched a lot of repeats of Bonanza, that definitely was a was a was a recurring storyline. Um, it's like the woman of the week. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, like instead of the monster of the week, it was the woman of the week. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was like on the on the TV show Combat. I don't know if you got that over there. You always knew the special guest star was the guy who was going to get killed. <laughs> short life expectancy uh next question is winter world on arctoons any chance of it happening uh he's he's saying that winter world frozen free fleet left off with a cliffhanger and he really wants to know what happens yeah it's a a shame because um i was going to do a 12th issue and and it was going to be scully and wind separated and the one half of it was going to be drawn by steve epting cool and the second half was by Pasquale Frazenda, an awesome Italian artist. Cool. And they were going to tell each of their stories. So we would have, we would have wrapped it up. I'm going to get back to Winter World. I'm working with a new startup company, which I can't talk about yet, but uh, we're definitely going to get back to more Winter World comics and more a lot of more Winter World content. That's great. I've got the hardcover actually of the Winter World one that, that you put you put out like a few years ago. Excellent, excellent yeah. read. Because you uh, originally did, a genius. Yeah, you originally did the first um, storyline was back in the eighties, right? And then you went back and revisited yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, eighties, and then at Epic we we did a sequel which they never published, which is in that hardcover. Right. And then uh, finally at IDW uh, they wanted to revisit it, um, That's and good. so you know we did more. That's great stuff. Uh, uh, his final question is: Signal of Doom, great podcast or greatest podcast? Well, you know, <laughs> I will. I will. I always come back. Yeah, exactly. We, we love having you, Chuck. Like that's the thing. Now, um, he's he's actually now. I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Chuck. He says I get bonus points if you can get Chuck to sing Cobra, Cobra, la 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 la. You know, Cobra, la la la. 
Um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I, 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 I was going to say, I don't want to put Chuck through that because we want to have Chuck back on the show yeah. at some point. Um, yeah, we Chuck, all have to remain friends. We want to remain friends, exactly. Now, Chuck, um, obviously, I think people all know where they can find you, but is there anything that you, you want to mention or anything coming out that you want to promote that we haven't talked about? Um, we've covered a hell of a lot. No, I still, I, you know, I still have stuff coming out I can't talk about, even from last time we talked. So, yeah. um, you know, we'll talk about that next time. Oh, definitely. Well, look, yeah. I want to say thank you so much, Chuck. Um, carry on. Keep up the great work. And yo, Joe. All right. And all my friends down under, thank you for watching and listening. I appreciate it.